Hello and welcome to the ICE Tech Talks podcast, part of the ICE's continuing professional development program. I'm Mark Hansford, Director of Engineering Knowledge here at the ICE. And I'm Alex Wynne, the ICE's Knowledge Content Director. The demands on structures are changing, whether through deterioration and ageing, change of use or the impacts of climate change. Modern day structures must be more resilient than ever to hazards and stresses. It is the role of the civil engineer to ensure the concept of resilience is adequately thought about and planned for old and new infrastructure alike. To explore what resilience really means and what role engineers can play in building safe, resilient structures and communities, we are joined by two brilliant guests, Stereos Aristoteles Matulis and Sotirios Argadrudis. Both Sturgios and Sotirios are involved with Infrastructure Resilience and Bridge Ukraine. Infrastructure Resilience, led by Sturgios with Sotirios as the Deputy Leader, is an initiative that strives to deliver infrastructure resilience through SDG-based engineering solutions. They both co-founded Bridge Ukraine, an initiative set up to accelerate Ukraine's critical infrastructure recovery post-conflict. Sturgios is an Associate Professor of Research and Senior Fellow at the University of Birmingham. He's been an extensive presence for news agencies such as the BBC, served as evaluator for EU proposals and research grants from the UK, Canada and others, and has held editorial and reviewing responsibilities for more than 50 reputed journals. Sotirios is an assistant professor at Brunel University's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. He has over 20 years of research experience in risk and resilience analysis of critical in- infrastructure due to geohazards, such as floods, earthquakes, landslides, tsunamis and climate change effects. He also has more than 120 reports and publications in scientific journals, conference proceedings and book chapters, and is participating in over 20 research projects. He is also Vice Chair of the International Association for Bridge and Structural Engineering Task Group on Design Requirements for Infrastructure Resilience. Sotirios, Sturdios, it's a pleasure to have you both with us. So, tell us, why is resilience so high up the agenda for you both? So, um, first, um, perhaps it would be worth describing what resilience is in simple terms. So resilience is the ability to plan, prepare for, mitigate and adapt to changing conditions. Uh, For example, from hazards. Say, for example, we have a bridge that has been affected by a flood. Um, How the bridge responds to that in terms of its redundancy, in terms of its capacity and how it recovers after the uh, stressor uh, is what we call resilience. Uh, The quicker the bridge uh, recovers the, the the higher the the greater the resilience of of the structure. So, structural resilience it's is is a bit more specialized than just you know system of systems resilience. Structural resilience is a property of a structure. For example, uh, again I'm going back to the example of the bridge, is the ability of the bridge to withstand an extreme stressor, a flood event or a strong wind with minimal damage. And at the same time, it is designed to const- and constructed in a way that enables a swift recovery. So resilience is all about absorbing the damage and recover quickly after it. Thank you, Sturgeos. And it's, I mean, that's really good to start with the absolute clarity on what we are here talking about. And and actually, perhaps it's worth sort of hovering on that and, and perhaps sort of just be clear on the differentiation between resilience and risk. Yes, so 
There is a fundamental difference between uh, risk and resilience. Risk is all about um, losses, so how much you lose after a hazard occurs. Risk is dependent on the hazard, the intensity of the hazard, uh, the vulnerability, how vulnerable your infrastructure ecosystem is, how vulnerable your your roads and your, your bridges are, and the exposure, how many assets um, are exposed to the hazard. Whereas resilience, as, as I mentioned before, is all about recovery, how quickly we can recover to minimize these losses. Satiros, go on. Perhaps I can uh, explain a bit more uh, what is risk. Um, so as Terios mentioned, risk is dependent on hazard, vulnerability and exposure. By hazard, we mean uh, what is the expected uh, intensity of, of a hazard event in a given area. For example, what is the expected uh, water depth um, in a certain area in case of floods. And this is usually um, described uh, with respect to a certain uh, period of time. And then um, by vulnerability, we mean uh, what is the level of expected damage for a given structure, let's say a bridge. Will, will this be a minor, a moderate, or an extensive damage for this given uh, intensity measure, in this case, the water depth? Uh, so by combining th these two uh, factors and by knowing which assets are exposed, and by exposure, we don't mean only the location of, of the bridge, but also what is the value of the bridge, uh, the value in terms of uh, how critical is the bridge for the network, uh, what is the traffic that this bridge accommodates. So if we know this information, then we can uh, assess uh, the risk, which is about uh, losses, both direct losses uh, of, of uh, the structure, but also uh, impacts on the network or the society that uh, is dependent on this infrastructure. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I suppose, can you just go a little further and describe some of the more modern day hazards that structures need to be resilient against? And I suppose in the context of, is that are you seeing that changing quite rapidly in recent years? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's uh, several hazards that our infrastructure are, is exposed to, uh, and these can be classified to geophysical hazards, including, uh, for example, landslides, uh, earthquakes, ground, ground movements, uh, also meteorological, hydrological hazards, including uh, storm surges, uh, river floods, uh, and uh, windstorms. And then um, some of the hazards are exacerbated because of climate change uh, effect. Uh, so we um, observe uh, more extreme temperatures, uh, more uh, frequent droughts and heat waves. And uh, then we should consider uh, these multiple hazards um, that infrastructure is exposed to. Uh, typical examples are correlated sequential hazards, uh, for example, after um, heavy rainfall, uh, we might have a landslide, so a railway or a highway can be exposed to um, these combined uh, effects, uh, or uh, we have compound hazards, uh, for example, sea level rise uh, due to climate change can result to coastal erosion, and then uh, in combination with strong winds, uh, this might result to a storm uh, surge in coastal areas. So infrastructure in that area should uh, be designed uh, considering this combination of hazards. Great. Um, and looking at the UK situation, UK structures and buildings, how resilient would you say they are? So yes, taking into account that um, 
many different hazards are impacting our infrastructure, such as floods, strong winds, ground movements, and all sorts of other hazards, um, and affecting our structures and buildings. Um, they're still standing in most cases, and we have to consider by observation that our infrastructure is, is resilient. However, there's always more that can be done, especially in view of you know, the forthcoming climate change and the way hazards are being aggravated by the ongoing climate crisis. And what can be done is essentially strengthen and enhance um, the, the four properties, if you like, of resilience, meaning preparedness, uh, emergency planning, and recovery. And that, that can be taken into account, that can take into account the uh, climate adaptation strategies, which can be applied either before the hazard occurs, so we're talking in that case about ex-ante adaptation, or after the hazard occurs, what, what we can do um, in the during the recovery stage, and that's the so-called post-ante, or reactive, if you like, resilience measures. What examples could you share, I guess, which, which was sort of going to bring that to light, I suppose, where other structures which have perhaps either have demonstrated good resilience or, or, or perhaps um, where resilience has, has not been so well demonstrated? Satiros, you look poised to come in on that one. So we all remember the recent uh, heat wave um, in the UK uh, this uh, last summer uh, where we experienced very high temperatures, uh, near 40 degrees. Uh, and this had impact on uh, railway infrastructure. Uh, so the rail temperature uh, can be about 20 degrees higher than the air temperature. And this might cause buckling of uh, rail tracks. Uh, so we had such, um, uh, let's say, examples of uh, less resilient uh, infrastructure. Uh, or high temperature may cause melting of asphalt in roads. Uh, another example of... Uh, Resilient infrastructure uh, in the UK is the Queen's Ferry Crossing uh, in Scotland. Uh, so in one of our recent publications, uh, we have compared the resilience of the new built uh, Queen's Ferry Crossing with uh, the fourth road bridge, bridge uh, which was serving the same traffic uh, before the construction of uh, Queen's Ferry Crossing. And we found that uh, Queen's Ferry Crossing is significantly more resilient. Uh, however, uh, this bridge uh, was closed in February 2020 uh, due to accumulation of ice on the superstructure cables uh, because this was creating a safety risk um, for bridge users. And um, the bridge was closed for about uh, one and a half days. And we estimated that uh, the Queen's Ferry cross crossing uh, loss per day of closure was about uh, 3.7 million pounds per day. Uh, and this includes costs associated with uh, the tour of the traffic, also environmental costs due to uh, additional carbon emissions. And uh, this is an example of uh, how important is resilience uh, as a means to reduce severe losses uh, related to both direct and indirect losses uh, and I mentioned in this case the, the, the repair losses, but also traffic detour, environmental impact, uh, business interruption, and other cascading effects because of uh, a bridge closure. I mean, that, that, that's two really interesting examples. I mean, I'm sort of tempted to dive into both a little bit. Um, with, with the example of the you know extreme heat and, and the rail tracks kind of um, you know, potentially you know, expanding, melting, buckling in, in the heat, I mean, I guess 
the way we kind of manage that is speed restrictions and things like that, which I guess is sort of post hazard kind of kind of response. What what could be done to make a that type of infrastructure more resilient before the event? So there is examples in the international literature and design guidelines from countries that do experience very high temperatures, you know, on a yearly basis. So we can take the good practice and and, and methods and approaches and design our infrastructure based based on that. But we always have to bear in mind that temperatures still drop very low in the UK. Uh, so someone has to balance between those two extremes. Uh, the more colder winds we're experiencing, the more you know warmer summers, designs are going to be increasingly challenging. So both you know adopting what other countries are doing, but at the same time um, updating our policy and our design guidelines to take into account these these extremes essentially. Um, yeah, all these extremes imposed by climate change. Yeah, it's because there's a lot of media coverage of that back at the time, wasn't there? You know, because clearly other parts of the world have railways and other parts will get a lot hotter than the UK. But um, but you say we also do still get quite cold in the winter as well. And, and so there's that sort of that extreme temperature range that we're dealing with is, is perhaps a bit unprecedented. And, and so that does involve us looking closely at our codes and standards and, and perhaps... Is, is there a sort of a question there around the you know the type of materials and things like that? There's, there's absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So from from the materials, the way we are, you know, supporting the rail lines, uh, the materials of the, of the substructure of the rail lines, potential use of expansion joints. Um, so you know, across the board of materials, methods, design methods, construction methods, could help to um, improve. Um, either existing ones or 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 better design new infrastructure. Okay. And if I continue to indulge myself in your examples, um, Queen's Ferry Crossing is, again, a really interesting example because I sort of vividly recall at, at the time of it sort of being constructed and commissioned, it's, it's I think it had the record for one of the most kind of uh, monitored structures ever, ever built um, when, when it opened. It probably still is. So there's clearly some fantastic... Um, sort of risk management, sort of um, and resilience embedded into into that at the design stage. So I'm just intrigued. I mean, I guess the fact that it, it did have to recently shut for a for a, sh a short while is, is that an example of of all the checks and balances working, and and we actually spotted something before something more significant happened. Tell us a little bit more about that. No, definitely, uh, this bridge is a very resilient uh, structure. Uh, but again, it's an example how um, multiple hazards and climate change affect my affect uh, our our design and our um, management of uh, of, of uh, such critical infrastructure. And um, here we can mention uh, how uh, new and emerging technologies uh, might be beneficial for uh, the inspection, uh, the assessment, and uh, at the end the uh, decision that we take uh, for uh, maintenance or uh, for um, managing such risks. Um, and by such technologies, uh, I mean the use of uh, drones, uh, the use of satellite images, uh, all this information and data that is now, nowadays available and can support our assessments and uh, our decision-making uh, during this process. Great. Perhaps I can add something here. Please. Um, 
So yeah, I'm just following up on what Sotirius mentioned before about the Queenspheric crossing that is a very resilient structure. But we ha- we always have to bear in mind that the engineer is designing based on guidelines, based on codes. So it takes you know an extra effort and an extra thought uh, to really shift our designs to make you know to make our assets and infrastructure more resilient. For example, you cannot really predict that you know ice will be accumulated on the cables of the cable, cable state bridge, and then this will uh, have an impact on on the traffic. But if you look in the literature in Canada, for example, which is a you know substantially colder climate, uh, they do have examples of that. So transferring the good practice from other countries again is is very important. Try and see what had been done in the past when uh, the design of a similar bridge was was um, was delivered. Can I just ask, I suppose, because I think we did have a UK example of it previously as well on the second seven crossing in the past, perhaps, I think. I'll double check that one. But I, yeah, and I think it was at the time, it was quite an unusual occurrence. And I suppose it leads me to question how fast are civil engineers at picking up on these variations and factoring them in when they aren't, when, when it's moving faster than the codes can tell them to design for that? Yes, so the engineer is designing, um, you know, based on on, on guidelines, and and it, as I mentioned before, it, it only takes um, a shift in the way we are thinking, you know, the, the the extra step, the extra bit to think about the local conditions. What might change? Uh, can I check, you know, climate projection maps in the area and see what's the predictions for the future? Are we expecting stronger winds? Are we expecting colder winters? winters and with that you, you can make the decision as to how far um, or you know which means you will be using to depart from from the existing guideline and do the extra the extra design the the ex- put put some extra measures in place to protect uh, the functionality of an asset great i suppose that's slightly is it do you th- see that i suppose as maybe the role evolving in itself a little the engineer is kind of not constrained by the codes but using them as the as the fundamental basis to add add upon their own technical and and wider reach and more broadly what do you see the the engineer's role in ensuring that resilience of our structures before during and maybe also after a hazard so I think the role of the engineering is shifting substantially nowadays and especially in view of delivering the you know the sustainable development goals of the UN, that the civil engineer has now to respond and to deliver in many, many different areas, not only designing and maintaining and, and inspecting infrastructure, but also understanding what are the needs of the society, how to embrace new digital technology, how do you make sense of big data that are available for their infrastructure, um, how do you make your infrastructure, you know, accessible by different, you know, people with, with different needs and, and make the, the infrastructure more equitable. So, yes, um, our role is, is expanding and, and, and I believe the, the duty of civil engineers is to deliver on all the sustainable development goals of the UN. Well said. <laughs> I mean, I mean, absolutely, and it's, and it's very much, I think, at, at the heart of everything civil engineers should be striving to do is develop, deliver on the UN SDGs and, and pleasingly... You know, I see very much supports that. And it's interesting to begin to understand the engineer's role here in ensuring the resilience of our structures. But 
so let's get sort of, I guess, practical. Um, how do we as engineers quantify structural resilience? And sort of from that, what um, what tools and, and codes and guidance might be available to, to help with that? Soterios. So resilience is commonly uh, represented uh, through the resilient uh, graph, uh, which correlates uh, the infrastructure performance in the vertical axis uh, over time in the horizontal axis. So this uh, graph has four phases. Uh, the first phase is about uh, planning and preparation, is when uh, we have a normal operation of uh, the infrastructure. And then at some point, uh, we have an external stressor, for example, a flood or an earthquake. So the functionality or the performance of the infra infrastructure is dropping. And how much it drops uh, depends on how robust is the infrastructure. So um, to assess uh, this uh, drop of functionality, we need to assess the vulnerability of uh, the structure. And this is commonly uh, made by using fragility models, which quantify the level of damage uh, as a function of uh, the intensity measure for the given hazard. Uh, so uh, then we have the second phase, uh, which, the fa which is the phase of absorption of this damage, uh, the response of, uh, of against this damage. And uh, this, as I said, it depends on the robustness of, uh, of the infrastructure. And then the third phase is uh, the recovery phase, uh, where the performance of the infrastructure uh, is restored. And how quickly we will restore this performance depends on uh, what is available resources, uh, what is the level of damage, of course, and um, what is the decisions that we make. And uh, this uh, rapidity of uh, restoration is commonly based on restoration models that are available, uh, which quantify the level of damage with uh, the recovery time. And finally, we have uh, uh, the fourth phase, uh, which is uh, the adaptation phase. And here is about how uh, we can consider during the reconstruction and during the mitigation of um, our infrastructure, climate change exacerbations, uh, how, how to adapt uh, infrastructure and uh, how to adapt our solutions, uh, considering these uh, climate change uh, effects. That's interesting. So I'm not sure as a as a near layman, um, that you would necessarily think of uh, structural resilience and having those those four phases. I think that's that is that is quite interesting, and and perhaps there are there is a there is a real live example of the of the work you're currently doing in Ukraine, maybe, which um, highlights certainly that that third phase around you know how quickly you can get things back up and running um, based on a on a resilience model. So yes, we are currently creating an inventory of damaged bridges and other critical infrastructure assets. And we're trying to quantify upfront direct losses and indirect losses in terms of traffic functionality, services, and other environmental impacts and losses. Uh, and we inform with these the resilience models that we are, we are developing. Um, in a post-conflict period, um, bear in mind that resilience looks a bit different from what we know in you know in in countries where where we are just facing uh, climate hazards, because there in, in the case of you know post conflict response we have to think about the level of, of operability, because you have like the minimum minimal level of operability which is the emergency planning, 
you have the sustainable level of, of bearability, which means that you can support recovery based on what you have in the country after conflict in terms of materials, finances, etc. And, or you can, you can adapt your infrastructure and go back to the original or even higher functionality, meaning that you will use help from other countries. Um, so it's, it's different levels of, of um, resilience and that involves obviously the potential loss of functionality due to protracted conflict and all sorts of um, uh, hurdles, if you like, along the way of recovery. That's really, that's really interesting. And I think, I mean, clearly that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's another level of a kind of, uh, to, of, of thinking about resilience, which, which, as you say, you wouldn't perhaps traditionally encounter if you are just kind of looking at things like changing climate as, as, as impacting on resilience. But, it, but it's, a, it's a neat example, isn't it, of, 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 how, um, of how you have choices to make as an engineer in terms of the levels of resilience you, you might want to put into into your your structure so i think that's, that's that's a nice example thank you when we talk and you know about resilience specifically and and our, our job and it's really interesting that you started talking there about you know the codes i guess kind of go so far and we need to sort of be layering on top of that um some some sort of wider awareness um so i suppose specifically i mean if i'm a you know, an engineer about to design a, a, a bridge or I'm, I'm maintaining a bridge, where do I go sort of above and beyond the kind of a, the current codes and guidance to sort of make sure I've, I've, I'm arming myself with all the, all the data, all the, all the guidance that is, that is available? So um, in reality, every structure and every asset uh, is serving a purpose within a system. So what we need to do um, nowadays now is to really shift the the way we're designing our infrastructure and cons start considering interdependencies. Because the system contains other assets and other systems of assets, which are in most cases, as I mentioned, interdependent from a geographical, functional and logical point of view. And this means that any perturbation, any loss of functionality in one asset might propagate uh, into the system uh, or in other systems of assets within the same or, you know, within the same infrastructure system. Um, and that leads to downtimes and reduced functionality. Satira. Yeah, and then it's not only about uh, the structural resilience of, of a structure or an infrastructure, it's also uh, about the organizational resilience. Uh, so do we have the resources? Uh, do we have uh, the systems that support decision-making in case of an extreme event? Uh, do we have um, uh, the protocols and um, uh, the procedures to intervene after uh, a failure? Um, and this is also related to what Stereos mentioned before about interdependencies. Uh, so different infrastructure oper operators uh, should, let's say, collaborate uh, in order to uh, make more uh, efficient decisions, uh, which can be beneficial for both infrastructures, not just for one, let's say, the highways, uh, but also uh, it's railways, uh, power networks, or uh, water systems. So all these interact and uh, decisions should be made uh, considering these interdependencies. How well set up do you think the industry is to behave like that? Because it is requiring a difference of collaboration across 
say, client organisations with their supply chains, getting them to talk to one another. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, nowadays, there's more, um, let's say, collaboration between uh, different infrastructure operators, but there is still uh, room for improvement and uh, how uh, these uh, different entities uh, can uh, work together toward um, resilience of our infrastructure. Um, and this can be both at city level and uh, regional, national level. Um, for example, I can mention here uh, the National Infrastructure Commission uh, of the UK. Um, the objective is how to um, support uh, our infrastructure and make it more resilient in a holistic way, considering these interdependencies. That's really helpful because I think that is, you know, we're hearing an awful lot more about the systems approach, a holistic approach. And I think engineers' awareness might be increasing, but I suppose it's now giving them the real life examples of how it can work. Can you share any examples of where you've um, seen how a hazard can impact the resilience of an entire system or community, just to sort of, again, reinforce this point of where, uh, where it, I guess, can go wrong when those systems thinking, that systems thinking has not been done? Yeah, well, maybe I, I would I would disagree with what Sudhu said before about um, collaborations and and you know the level of communication that exists nowadays between different operators. If we look at the examples of you know very recent floods, there's been power stations closed, and we you know we wouldn't be able to access them because a bridge or, or 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 a tunnel that you know that takes you to the to the power station was closed because of you know it was completely flooded or there was debris accumulated on the bridge and you couldn't cross the bridge so i think there is a lot more that can be done towards this direction um and what we really need and this is what we what we um stated in a very recent uh, opinion paper is that um we we should stop thinking and seeing things in, in, in this very myopic way, we need to see well beyond what is going on nowadays and, and make people, make decision makers, stakeholders start, you know, sitting at the same table and opening, opening up a discussion as to how, how they should be making their infrastructure more resilient. Um, try and see what, what is expected in the future in terms of climate projections and try and see well points of vulnerability in their systems and how they can improve these these vulnerabilities. With if we do that proactively now, we will save a lot of money um, in comparison to the case where we reactively, you know, do something after after a hazard occurs, after a flood occurs, after a strong wind um, causes damage. So yes, the the example about um, interdependencies and how important they are. I think I mentioned before the. Um, you know, road is closed and, you know, we don't have access to a hospital or we don't have access to a power station. And the other way around, you have a power station, uh, you know, you have a blackout and and you cannot electrify a bridge. So you cannot actually use a smart bridge like the Queen's Ferry Crossing because you have all these um, intelligence and, and monitoring systems installed in the bridge, but now they're not working because you don't have electricity. So it works both ways and minimizing and mitigating these interdependencies is extremely important. It's, uh, I mean, like, that's such a such an interesting and important point. I, I suppose my just my 
question on that is is how does the kind of uh, like a, a bridge engineer how do they you know how can they influence that that kind of holistic level kind of interoperability thinking i mean it, I, I imagine an, an individual engineer might feel a bit powerless to be able to do anything about that so how how could they kind of make their voice heard so I think it cannot really be done on an individual basis. So, you know, an engineer by themselves or, or a design office cannot really decide to do these things. So as Sotirios mentioned before, we need a form, an organization, like the you know, National Infrastructure Commission is one organization. We need an act. We need uh, a guideline that would say, you know, if you're designing a very important bridge in this area, you really have to take into account that power station X, Y, and this asset is strongly dependent by this bridge and you know all the bridge is dependent by these assets of of the of in the vicinity of of, of the of your asset um, so in my opinion it cannot be done on an individual basis it has to be um predicted for and it has to be um planned for i suppose it's it's very upfront in the process isn't it it has to be prop yeah appropriately planned yeah um it would be remiss to ha to have you here and not bring up the uh, the thing you've most recently found at Bridge Ukraine. I'd love for you to just spend a bit of time explaining to us what you're seeking to achieve there, because it does sound like a extremely unworthy initiative. Yes, yeah, so um, Bridge Ukraine started when one of my students um, emailed me and he said that he's in Ukraine when the war started, and. Um, he was asking me, what can we do to start, you know, reconstructing damaged bridges because he was there with his family and he couldn't commute, he couldn't take the children to the school. When he came back to the UK, we decided that we can do much more than just rebuilding one bridge, uh, but rather try and deliver a framework for accelerating the reconstruction of critical infrastructure in, in Ukraine. And we did start with... Um, a strong case study in Kiev where a number of bridges and critical infrastructure has, has been damaged. Uh, now this has become a bit you know, bigger and so we have more than 20 people now from across the board. We have um, survey engineers, we have civil engineers, we have people who are decision makers on infrastructure, we have the Ministry of Infrastructure of Ukraine, um, and we, we have been doing uh, a number of activities. For example, we have delivered CPD seminars to Ukrainian engineers, um, you know, um, showing them how to design bridges. Uh, and we have also, also delivered a framework based on which we can prioritize the reconstruction of certain critical assets in Ukraine. So yeah, just to add on this, um, because the resources are limited, um, we need somehow to prioritize uh, where we should uh, go first. Which are the most critical uh, assets of, of a network? Uh, so through this uh, framework, um, we, we try to provide such uh, assessments for prioritization for critical infrastructure. And uh, also uh, for this, we are using uh, digital data, uh, information coming from satellite images, uh, and uh, even data and information from social media uh, reports uh, available online um, in order to understand what is the extent of damage, uh, where the damage is located, uh, what is the impact of these damage. And by combining this information and our uh, engineering uh, 
uh, knowledge on resilience assessments, then we can, at the end, uh, prioritize and uh, suggest what is uh, the assets that they need to be recovered first. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. I think it's a wonderful example, isn't it? Not just of, of trying to help in an extraordinarily awful situation, but again, a very real-time, proactive civil engineering approach to, that's systems approach thinking as well. Um, thank you both so much. Um, it's been really fascinating. Um, I really hope uh, everyone out there listening has got as much out of it as we have here. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can learn more about this topic and discover more podcasts, videos and other resources on the ICE Knowledge Hub, which is accessible via ice.org.uk. New content is launched throughout the year, so do keep a lookout. I've been your co-host, Alex Wynn. And I've been your other co-host, Mark Hansford. This was an ICE Tech Talks podcast. We hope you can join us again soon.